Guess what I saw the other day that just goes to show how in the country I am. What? I saw a skunk. Oh. Did I, did, <laughs> I didn't think I you send sent, you that yeah, video? Yeah, you sent me that. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a skunk IRL except like in a, in a zoo or something. I don't think that they are supposed to come out during the day. Oh. But... I was like talking to Evan about it later and he's like, oh yeah, there's a daytime skunk in the backyard. What? <laughs> I don't know. Well, because usually if like if you see like a raccoon or mm-hmm. a skunk out during the day, then they might be rabid. Oh. So you should stay away from them because well. they're nocturnal animals. But now I feel like I can't let the cat outside anymore because yeah. she's going to come home smelling Stankin. like yeah. a skunk. Yeah. I, I've, yeah, I've never encountered a skunk, but, um, where I went to college, um, at Auburn, one of the places that I lived, we had like concierge trash. So like a little box (laughs) and they'd like throw your, (laughs) well, somebody would come by and like throw your trash away. Um, and so like Jarrell, he... (laughs) He would like sit outside um, near where that trash thing is because there was really only one place to sit. And sometimes he'd be sitting out there at night and he'd like come in freaked out and he'd be like, I just saw like a gang of like raccoons. One, like I'm telling you, Natalie, it had muscles. It was walking on its hind hind legs, Natalie, like freaking out. And I'm just like, okay, I feel like you're being a little dramatic. Like, okay, I'm sure that you saw a raccoon that looked like it was bench pressing, like walking on its hind legs. Like, I'm sure that's what happened. And then only for one day, like I'm coming home at night and I'm walking up the steps to our apartment and there are like four raccoons at the top of the steps and one of them on their hind legs. It was the most terrifying thing in the world. I literally ran back to my car and I sat in my car for like three hours. I was like, I... (laughs) So Terrell is telling the truth. Yeah, he was totally telling the truth. (laughs) So raccoons are terrifying to me. No, I saw in Denver once, I saw a cat chase a raccoon down a sewer grate, like gutter type thing. And I was like, did that just happen? Like, we are in Denver, Colorado, in the, like, basically suburby area, not, like, even in the city, Mm -hmm. just where houses are. (laughs) Animals are weird, man. Animals are terrifying. So, and now that quarantine is happening, I feel like they're growing and populating the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, they're that's... like preparing for us when we come out. They're gonna get us. Yeah, they're reclaiming their land. Well, it's okay. I'm a vegetarian, so they won't hurt me. But I don't know about you. I can't say the same. <laughs> I'm so sorry, cows. I'm so sorry.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. All right. Well, so today we are talking about thieves, I guess is to be really general. So I'm talking about a jewelry thief and you are talking about an art thief. Um, Kind of like an Ocean's 8, but like real life and like... I saw... Did you... You didn't see Ocean's 8, did you? No. I... Well, I love the original Oceans, Mm -hmm. so I was like, I have to see this, and it was just so bad. Like, it was just... (laughs) The ending, I think, is, like, what really did it for me, because in the original movies, they would kind of, like, walk you through what they did, Mm -hmm. and, like, it wasn't just, like, a total shock at the end when they, like, robbed everyone, but the th- what they did for Ocean's 8 just was, like, it was just bad. Yeah. And just totally unrealistic. It, I can't even really remember the ending, but it I just remember being, like, seriously, like, that's the best that you guys could do. Um, so, <laughs> we will be talking about real women thieve people. Um, mine is super interesting. There's a documentary about her life, and apparently they were starting to do, like, a movie, and I forgot the lady's name that was gonna play her. Let me look it up. It's Tessa something. I don't remember. Tessa Thompson? Oh, Tessa Thompson. Yeah. Was apparently going to play her in the movie, but I don't know if that ever came out. But I would see it, because it's a really interesting story. Yeah. Um, which I will get started with telling right now. So, Doris Payne grew up in the 1930s in a segregated coal mining community in West Virginia. So from the start, her life was not easy. Her mother experienced domestic abuse at the hands of her father. When she was a child, Payne would imagine being far away and living a glamorous life. Payne would devour the fashion magazines her mother subscribed to. Uh, Payne idolized the characters in movies like Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind and soon began to imitate her mannerisms. She would dress up in a hat and carry a purse and call herself Miss Lady. And this game allowed her a temporary escape, but her ability to dress up would benefit her in more ways than she could imagine later in life. When she was a little bit older, Payne visited a jewelry store to try on watches. She told the owner her mother promised to buy her a watch if she got good grades, which was true. Um, And the owner of the store abandoned Payne, who was black, the second a white customer walked through the door. So Payne was asked to leave because the store owner did not want to be seen talking to a black person. And she realized how easily she could have walked out of the store wearing the watch since the owner forgot that she even had it on. So she returned the watch that time. 
but she realized how easy it would be for her to slip out the door on notice. So when the abuse of her mother began to get worse, Doris decided that that was enough. Um, she said at a time later in life, reflecting back on it, uh, those things can set in the mind of a young girl. I'm never going to be under the thumb of a man. I'm going to be the judge of my own destiny. I don't really think that that alone drives Doris. So after graduating high school, uh, Payne worked on and off at a nursing home, but she didn't really make enough money to get the freedom that she desired. So later, um, Payne would say that that was the only real job she ever had. Um, but so she ended up boarding a bus to Pittsburgh when she was between 16 and 20 years old. She stole a diamond and sold it, taking the cash back home for her mother. Finally, they were able to escape. Um, where do you know, like, where she stole the diamond from? Like, like was it a person store? or a store? Yeah, from a store. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, diamond lined streets of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, no, it was like a jewelry store. Okay. Um, so Payne told her mother that she wanted to make a living taking jewelry from stores. In Payne's eyes, this wasn't stealing. She was simply taking advantage of a system that wasn't set up to help people like her succeed. Payne's mother was nervous, but was reassured by Payne, who said, I'm only taking what the man wants me to have. So before I get into the rest of the story, Payne's recollections of her life were often inconsistent, making it difficult for law enforcement to really pin down the details of her stories. So I will be sharing information from various articles on her life, but I encourage you to read the sources if you're interested, uh, double check just in case I got anything wrong. Um, so Payne grew up to be a gorgeous young woman. And as a gorgeous young woman, she was easily trusted by strangers. So Payne could don some fancy clothes and immediately fit into any social situation. Over the years, Payne had about 22 aliases and was in and out of prison for much of her life. So Payne's con was easy. She would enter a jewelry store dressed to the nines carrying a designer purse. During this time, black people were treated like second-class citizens. So, simply put, Payne uh, said you had to look like you belonged. Only during that time. Yes, only, only <laughs> ever during that time. Never again after that. <laughs> Didn't you hear that racism doesn't exist? Like after oh, yeah. Abraham Lincoln, I. T yeah, yeah, totally over. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is sarcasm, people. Yes, yes. Um, so she would ask the salesperson to see a variety of different pieces, trying them on, taking them off in an effort to create confusion. Next, an item would mysteriously vanish, but Payne would save the day by finding it. The salesperson would be so grateful that they would not notice that Payne had slipped one or two pieces uh, into her pocket. And then she would exit the store and would be long gone before anyone noticed that the jewelry was missing. So between the 1950s and 1970s, Payne used this technique to steal approximately $100,000 worth of jewelry. I don't know the conversion rates, and I'm not going to attempt to do math over that wide of a span, but it was a lot of money, so just don't ask. Um, in the 1970s, Payne's luck began to wear out. She stole a 10-carat, 500,000 diamond from Monte Carlo, which is a city, I think. Yeah, I think. Um, I don't know what country it's in, 
but she was there and she stole it from a store there. So the diamond was too valuable and soon an international investigation began. When Payne attempted to flee, the police were waiting for her at the airport. They took her into custody, but Payne outsmarted them again. She managed to remove the diamond from the ring and toss the ring into the Mediterranean. She sewed the stone into her girdle and managed to escape from law enforcement since they were never able to find it. And she eventually sold the stone in New York for over $100,000. So later, in the 1980s, Payne escaped federal custody in Ohio um, when she was detained during a hospital visit. She flew under the radar until 2010 when she was caught after stealing from a store on Saks Fifth Avenue. Payne had ripped the tags out of a $1,300 Burberry trench coat and walked out of the store with it. So in 2011, Payne was sentenced to 16 months in prison by a San Diego court after stealing a one carat diamond ring. Is carrots, is it the less that there is, the better? Or no. the more? More. For diamonds. Okay, so a one carat diamond ring wouldn't it's even not... be like nope. a thing. Well, it is. It can be a lot. Sure. Well, yes, it's a lot. Definitely probably something that I could not afford uh, currently. But compared to the other things she was selling was maybe on the smaller end. Um, So in 2013, she stole a $22,500 ring in Palm Desert, California. She was detained after that and pled guilty, earning a two-year prison sentence, followed by two years of parole. She was ordered to keep her distance from jewelry stores. Um which is hilarious, like, that's going to stop her. Um, <laughs> just, like, just stay away from jewelry stores. Um, so she was released after only three months due to prison overcrowding, and by 2015, Payne was at it again, reportedly stealing a $33,000 ring. After that, Payne was arrested for stealing from Saks Fifth Avenue again after slipping a $690 pair of Christian Dior earrings in her pocket. And finally, on July 17th of 2017, while wearing an ankle monitor, while being on probation from a previous crime, Payne was caught walking out of a Walmart with $86.22 worth of merchandise in Atlanta. So at this time, Payne was 87 years old and had stolen approximately $2 million worth of jewels and high-end clothing over her lifetime. And that's what she ended her career with. $86.22 walking out of Walmart. Which, in her defense, like, she's 87 years old. So maybe that time she just, like, forgot to pay and walked out of the store. Yeah, possible. Um, Yeah, but at the same time... I think what started as her saying, you know, almost like sticking it to the man, the system stacked against like African-Americans mm-hmm. and, you know, wanting to get out of poverty. I think, you know, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I'll say that's that was the motivation. But I think along the way, she it became pathological. Like, this is a high. I am addicted. I cannot oh, yeah. stop. Like, it, it has to be like, I don't see what other reason after you're in trouble Mm -hmm. you've gotten caught and you just can't stop doing this it seems i don't know it's kind of like that's her cocaine you know right well also like if this was intentional stealing from this walmart 
how many times did she probably walk out of a Walmart without paying? Like, probably hundreds before she was ever caught. I accidentally stole from Walmart one time. Don't admit that. I mean, okay, so I was, like, checking out all my stuff, and I had this t-shirt with a dragon on it that I had, like, put, it was, like, $5, and I was holding it, like, under, with my jacket, so I, like, paid for everything at the self-checkout, and I just walked out, and I, before, like, I was, like, far gone by the time I realized that I hadn't scanned it, and I was, like, oh, it's only $5, like, is it really worth going all the way back to the store, and, like, I spent enough money there back like when i was in oklahoma they only had walmart they didn't have like target or anything else oh god so i just kept it (laughs) yeah i mean that i will i will not um implicate myself in anything but i do know that it is possible to you know like if you put like a case of water on like the bottom rack and like then you fill your cart up with things it has happened to people that i know of Mm-hmm. who have accidentally forgotten that it was there and walked out um yeah. without you can paying leave, for it. yeah you can leave that in that i stole because <laughs> i don't think i did not have any bad intentions if the fbi prevents me from entering their workforce because i accidentally stole a five dollar t-shirt with a dragon on it then so be it but it was really an accident and like i felt really really bad but like i'm just saying that that can happen yeah yeah, but with accidental her, things do happen. Yeah, right. definitely. With her, it was probably that she just like did it so many times, and then she finally got caught. Um, she was eighty-seven years old. So, um, over seven over the seven decades that she was stealing, she was caught a handful of times, but probably got away with more than anyone will ever know. Upon a reflection of her life, Payne said. It was a challenge. The finer the heist, the greater the challenge. Payne felt that the constant racism she faced justified her crimes. It was punishment, she said. In the back of my head, I was saying, take that. In spite of her crimes, many jewelry sellers felt sympathy for Payne. Alfreda Molina, the chairman and owner of Black Star and Frost, appeared in the documentary about Payne's life, called The Life and Crimes of Doris Payne. He said... I found her to basically have an open heart and to share her life with everyone. She's not a threat to society. I don't agree with what she's done, but I do see her as a product uh, that was created by us. So, you know, that's her story. And just to share a little bit of a different perspective, um, let's talk about con men for a second. So, in 2002, Leonardo DiCaprio portrayed the famous con man, Frank Abagnale, in the film Catch Me If You Can. Have you ever seen it? Uh, Yeah, I've seen part of it. Only part of it? (sighs) It's really good. Well, you should watch the rest of it, because I actually really like it. But now, after this little tidbit, now I have, like, conflicted feelings about it. But anyway, so Abagnale's story has been turned into a book, a musical, and it also served as the inspiration for the TV show White Collar. Did you ever watch White Collar? Yes. It's good. Yes, but That bone was hot. Yeah. Um, when Abagnale was 16 years old, he posed as a pilot for Pan Am Airlines to get free flights. Abagnale would eventually assume eight different identities, pretending to be a doctor and an attorney. Which is terrible because you're putting people's lives at risk or their, like, 
I don't know what kind of attorney he was, but maybe people's estates or livelihoods or whatever. Like, pretending to be a doctor is just not, like, a funny, cute little thing to do. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he was also a master check forger and stole millions of pounds from banks before he was eventually arrested. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but only served five years before being recruited by the FBI to help them uncover forgers. He worked with the FBI for nearly 40 years as a consultant and also had his own successful security consultant company. (laughs) In a 2017 article for Wired, Abagnale was asked what he was most proud of in his life. And he said, I was very fortunate because I live in a great country where everybody gets a second chance. So you can make a mistake, pay your dues, get up, brush yourself off, and start all over again. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm I'm glad to hear that that is his reality. (laughs) Like, but um, applause for you, white yeah, man but... who did terrible things, and you were just handed a job with the FBI. Yeah, and you know you got your second chance that everybody in this country gets. I was like, sir, can you please check your privilege? And as far as I know, he hasn't done any like advocacy work or like donated any of his fortunes to like help people or yeah has not been an advocate that like if you commit crimes like you can turn your life around or like whatever yeah well rolled my eyes definitely very different from um doris's doris's story (laughs) right and just the story of you know the average person in america especially with like everything that's going on yeah very disappointing i'm just so like i'm so mad just reading that made me want to like punch a wall but i thought it was you know a nice little comparison to show one famous con man versus a famous con woman and you know like you could say that doris maybe because i feel like the people that would be getting in trouble i was like reading an article about this the people that would be getting in trouble for her stealing wouldn't necessarily be the higher ups in the company sure they may take like a pay cut but like the clerks or the people just working the showing the jewelry would be getting in trouble because she like snuck away with it on their watch which i do have you know some sympathy for them but they have changed the way that people show jewelry so they only do like one piece at a time now and there's more like security measures Um, But overall, you know, I can't really find too many flaws in her logic because if the world, if the deck was kind of stacked against you, like, why would you not just be like, well, screw it. I want to have a nice, like, cool, fun life where I travel everywhere and do whatever I want. So I'm going to do it. She has a documentary she has, like, a, a movie maybe coming out about her. She wrote her own book. Like, she's she's doing well for herself, and she's... I don't think she's passed yet. She was 87 yeah, in 2017, so... Whatever she did worked for her. And you know what? She was not risking anyone's lives, I don't think, by stealing jewelry. 
Yeah. Unlike Mr. Frank Abagnale pretending to be a doctor and stealing from banks and everyone's just like, oh, it's so cute. You can forge checks. Here, have an FBI job. <laughs> <laughs> My case is like a little different. I know I said art thief, but it's kind of not. But it like it's art, but then thief. I trust I trust you. <laughs> anyway, so um I am going to do the case of Glafira Rosales and the Nodler Art Gallery. I already <clears throat> love that name. Glafira? Glafira. Um yeah, so we're going to start with a little history of the Nodler Gallery. So it was founded in 1846. Nodler and Company was the oldest and one of the most well-respected art galleries in New York City. However, despite its prestige, this gallery was no stranger to scandal, ran- ranging from connections to Nazi-looted art and a forgery scam that would result in its dis- in its demise. Today, I'm going to be focusing on the events that led to New York City's oldest art institution closing its doors forever. So, it all starts with a Long Island art dealer named Glafira Rosales, a woman who, from what I can tell, was relatively unknown in the New York art scene at the time. So, beginning in 1994, which, fabulous year. Oh, yeah. We were born (laughs) that year. Yeah. Um, So beginning in 1994, Glafira approached the then president of the Nodler Gallery named Anne Friedman. Glafira told her that she had a client who had original art artworks painted by some of the greats like Jackson Pollock, Robert Motherwell, and Mark Rothko, among many, many others. And so when Anne asked Glafira who her client was, uh, Glafira told her that her client wanted to remain anonymous. And from then on, she would only refer to her client as, quote, Mr. X or, quote, Secret Santa. (laughs) So while I personally would have seen this as a red flag, um, Anne seemingly jumped at the opportunity to show and help sell these masterpieces. Uh, Reports indicate that Anne's role as president also made her responsible for doing her due diligence uh, to ensure that the quality of the paintings was real. Um, And according to the sources that I read, it seemed that she didn't take any of the appropriate steps. Uh, She didn't even ask Lafira for any proper documentation. Instead, for nearly 15 years, following Anne's instructions, the gallery helped Glafira sell these, quote, original paintings to the tune of roughly $80 million. Uh, These paintings, yeah, these paintings were sold to art collectors and other people who had the funds and really wanted to own an original painting by some of the world's greats. What Anne didn't know or most likely didn't want to know was that Glafira, with the help of her boyfriend, Jose Carlos Bergatinos Diaz, and his brother, named Jesus, um, they commissioned a Chinese painter who was based in Queens, New York, named, and anyone who speaks like Chinese or Mandarin, um, I apologize if I get this wrong, I looked up the trans- or the pronunciation, We'll see. Um, so his name was Pei Shen Qian. Um, 
and he, Sounds right. <laughs> um, and so they commissioned him to recreate these forgeries of um, famous mid-century or 20th century artists like Jackson Pollock. And then they would sell those forgeries through the Nord- Nodler Gallery. Um, so despite some of these paintings selling for like $10 million, Glyphera only ever paid patient Chien, um, about $9,000 for each painting. So um, his work, from what I can tell, was had to have been pretty stellar because his forgeries even duped some of some of like New York's and the world's um, biggest art collectors and gallery experts. Um, for example, Domenico de Sol, um, who was the chairman of Sotheby's, which handles private sales of fine art, um, fine jewelry and just really expensive things that I will never be able to, to afford. Mm-hmm. Um, he purchased a fake Mark Rothko painting for $8.6 million um, that was actually painted by Peixian. And um, and he even was quoted as saying that he had no reason to doubt that Nodler's like, would sell him something fake. One, because it looked like real, but he... <laughs> He described Nodler's as being the most trusted and oldest and most important gallery in the world. And so mm-hmm. um, he was like, yeah, of course it's real. Um, and so it wasn't until 2009 that suspicions about the authenticity of the works began. Uh, Jack Flam was among the first to raise questions. He was actually the president of the Dadalis Foundation, which was a nonprofit whose primary focus was authenticating paintings um, that were supposedly made by Robert, Robert Motherwell. And so unsurprisingly, when he um, was able to, when he got his hands on a Robert Motherwell painting that was sold by Glyphera, he was able to publicly identify it as a fake. And so um, with that, lawsuits began pouring in against the Nodler Gallery. Anne stepped down and the gallery soon shut its doors permanently. And because of the questions regarding the validity of these paintings, the FBI began an investigation focusing on at least 24 paintings sold by Glyphera. At first, she, of course, denied that she sold fake paintings, but soon she changed her tune. And in 2013, she pled guilty to selling more than 60 forged paintings. And in in addition, she pled guilty to conspiracy to commit money laundering, actually committing money, money laundering, tax evasion, and wire fraud. Um, very different from your case, but um, she, she, was, she was sentenced to jail time, um, but only got three months of jail time for um, selling $80 million worth of fake paintings and money laundering and tax evasion and all that stuff. Um, and she was also ordered to pay back $81 million to the victims um, or the people who bought her fake paintings. And yeah, that is the case of Glyphere Rosales. <laughs> I don't have as much sympathy for the quote unquote victims in this case because, I f- yeah, like if you have that much money, why would you not? Is there no way to authenticate? If you're making that big of a purchase, you know. Yeah. I think part of it is if you're buying a big purchase or if you're buying a painting like this from such a well-respected gallery, like the gallery itself is supposed to have like authenticated it before they sold it. 
And so even though the gallery didn't do that, they just assumed that since the gallery was the one approaching them or helping kind of broker the sale, um, then the gallery would have done their due diligence, um, which they didn't, which is why the, there are so many, there were so many lawsuits directed at the gallery specifically, um, causing the gallery to have to shut down. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely feel like if I, if I'm about to spend $10 million on a painting, even if you like give me the proper paperwork, I'm going to call somebody and Hey, can you just, just take a look, you know? How, how real does this look? <laughs> well, the artist who did all these paintings should be famous and should just have his work be in <laughs> museums anyway, or like yeah. art galleries, because what he did was incredible enough that it fooled so many people. Yeah. And he um, he actually was able to elude um, like arrest, basically because he fled to China. Um the other two, Jose and Jesus, they were um, sp- like uh, Spanish citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they fled to Spain. And um, only one of them was deemed eligible by the Spanish authorities to be extradited because the other one had health issues. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think he was, I think just the one brother was able to get extradited to New York City to face charges. But. There's actually a documentary that I think came out this year or is coming out this year um, by, I think his name is Barry Average, um, and it's called Made You Look, A True Story About Fake Art that tells um, the story of the Nodler art scandal. So, I wonder, I, at some point in time in my life, I don't remember where, but I saw an exhibit of like forgeries and fake arts mm-hmm. and it would like fake arts, fake paintings, <laughs> arts, <laughs> artwork, <laughs> artwork. Um, and it like went in and showed you, oh, I'm trying to remember where it was. I don't think it was at the Boston, maybe it was in Denver or Oklahoma. I'm not sure, yeah, but it was a really cool exhibit now that I my memory is sparked and I'm thinking of that. Yeah, I don't really know anything about art. I just know that I would not spend $10 million on it, even if I could. So. I honestly think a lot of modern <laughs> art is a scam. Like, <laughs> oh, look, oh, yeah, like a I, toilet. <laughs> I painted uh, one red dot and that's like a symbol for my frustration in my childhood. And it's yeah. $30 million. I think I've heard that modern art is a way for, like, rich people to exchange money and, like, avoid paying certain things or... I don't know. It's gotta be. But... There, wasn't there somebody who put, like, a, um, like, a banana, like, stapled it to, like, a wall or something Probably. and that, like, sold? It was just utterly ridiculous. And I'm like, why can't... Why can't I come up with a great idea like this, put, like, a shoe on a stick and sell that for I don't know the cost of my student loans <laughs> I'll buy it <laughs> I only have like three dollars though so I don't oh, know darn. I don't think it'll put much of a dent in your loans yeah. but it's like art like used to if you see like really old paintings like at the MFA in Boston there's like these huge paintings that like are as big as a wall that are like super detailed and like 
way crazy. And it's like, okay, yes, I understand why something like this would cost millions of dollars because it's huge. It took so mm-hmm. much time and like, it's really intricate, but like, oh, here's like an ombre canvas <laughs> and it's a kajillion dollars. I don't, yeah. under- I don't like, it doesn't invoke like feelings in me wait have you have i told you to watch the great yet on hulu no but i watched the first episode and i i I didn't even finish the first episode i just couldn't what it was like i don't know like i like i was just like all right i thought it was amazing (laughs) maybe i was just in a bad mood i was also watching it late at night so i think my focus probably wasn't you have to like um, not yeah you have to not take it seriously but well that's what that's like i was just like this is i get it it's silly but i was just like i'm i struggle at like suspending disbelief what when i watch something sometimes and so it's probably my problem but well in it they it's like russia back in the day of catherine the great and she like convinces the emperor to show art, so they have like all these like paintings up. And the guy, the main guy, is like the emperor is like a total sociopath, like mm-hmm. psychopath actually, because he just like kills people and doesn't even think twice about it. But he sees like people that are so moved by the art that they're just like sobbing, and he's just like, "Why are they crying? Like we got them this art to make them happy," and they're like oh no they're like so moved by the paintings and it's like bringing them tears and it's like when i see really old fancy paintings that are like very intricate like one time in the mfa i saw a painting of a boy with a squirrel and i was like wow that's a really nice boy with a squirrel and it just moves you (laughs) there's actually a painting that's like a boy with a squirrel but it looks so beautiful then i'm like I really feel for this squirrel and this boy. What what kind of adventures did they go on? Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.